Anyway, if you want to open your Bibles, we're going to be in 1 Samuel. As we get into part 3 of 1 Samuel. And uh, we'll be finishing off chapter 1 and going into chapter 2. But we found ourselves last week where, uh, in the middle of chapter 1, where Elkanah and Hannah and Panina, the three major players in this story at the present time, Elkanah being the husband, Panina and Hannah being the, the two wives in that situation. And Panina was having loads of babies and Hannah was having none. And she got as far as offering a prayer to the Lord. That, and we were talking about it last week that you know, sometimes our prayers just don't quite tie in with what God wants to do. Sometimes we think too small when we pray. That we're thinking about something fairly local and parochial. And God wants us to expand that prayer out and, and see what his will in the situation is. And, and so it was with Hannah that I'm sure her and Elkanah who were come across here as being very godly people praying for babies for years and nothing was happening. And then finally when Hannah went up to, to Shiloh to the tabernacle she was caught by Eli muttering a prayer outside the, the, the fellowship tent. And of course Eli thought she was drunk because of her strange behaviour. But she wasn't drunk. She says, oh no, I'm, I'm not drunk. She says, I've just asked the Lord. Finally, if you, if you give me this child, I'll dedicate him to you. I'll give him back to you. I'll lend him back to you as being the king and the God. And that was what God was waiting on because although Hannah wanted a baby a son to present to her husband and to make him feel fulfilled in it. God wanted a prophet to hand to Israel to bring about his chosen will in the situation. Because Israel at this time were <clears throat> totally apostate. They had turned away from the Lord. Even the very fact that Eli was asking Hannah, you know, why are you drinking, why are you drunk? was an indication, the whole text there gives us the indication that people were regularly drunk when they went to worship. And that just kind of speaks to the whole chaotic nature of what was happening in Israel at the present time. But Eli, being the high priest at the time, he literally prophesied to Hannah, may the Lord give you what you ask as a son. And it tells us that such was the touch of the Lord in her life at that point in time, that she went away joyful. And she started to eat where she couldn't eat before because she was so downhearted. So in some measure we see there the prayer of a desperately discouraged woman. And then as we come on, we're going to see at the start of chapter 2 when we get there, the praise of a wonderfully joyous heart of the same woman. So we start at verse 21 here. That the baby Samuel has been born, but he's not yet weaned. And at verse 21 it says, When her husband Elkanah went up with all his family to offer the annual sacrifice to the Lord and to fulfill his vow, Hannah did not go. She said to her husband, After the boy is weaned, I will take him and present him before the Lord, and he will live there always. So this was the overlap for last week. Elkanah goes up, but Hannah wants her me time with her child. I mean, I don't know that us guys can ever understand 
what it would be for a woman to give up her child. A man, it would be heartbreaking enough for Elkanah, but for Hannah, the actual act of, of surrendering the boy, even if although she was surrendering it to the Lord, would have been quite a, a tug in her life, quite a, a thing for her. But she was determined that she would fulfill the vow she made to God, that she would hand this child over to serve the Lord. And at verse 23, Elkanah says to her, Do what seems best to you, her husband Elkanah told her. Stay here until you have weaned him, only may the Lord make good his word. So the woman stayed at home and nursed her son until she had weaned him. In those days, there were no extra supplements or formulas of that. Women would probably breastfeed children up to their maybe three years old. So Samuel could have been three years old at this point in time. But still, you know, in many eyes, still just a baby, just, just a youngster. And yet this was to be the great prophet of Israel. This was to be the bridge. You know, a type of Christ, he was going to be the bridge between God and man. He was going to be the bridge between God and Israel, where Jesus is the bridge between God and the world, uh, as well as being the bridge between God and Israel. So this man says to his wife, you do what seems best to you. I always think that the secret of happy marriage, you know. Just do what seems best to you, darling. Just whatever. But this man, you know, the, the, the whole aspect of what he says here is, it's a man in tune with his wife. He understands what it is that's troubling her. And he's frustrated because he can do nothing about it. There's no child coming and it's, it's not his fault because Penina's having children and Hannah isn't. So it's no Elkanah's problem that they're not having children. The problem lies with Hannah. And of course, this frustrates Elkanah as well. And I, I don't know how many times Elkanah must have been on his knees before the Lord saying, Lord, please do something. You know, we've asked for this child for so long and yet here it is. Here's this child, Samuel. And Hannah wants her time with him before she takes him up to be with the Lord. And at verse 24, after he was weaned, she took, both, she took the boy with her, young as he was, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah flower and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. Some translations translate it, she brought three bulls. It could be translated three bulls, or it could be translated a three-year-old bull, but it really doesn't matter. They took a bull, or more than one bull, up for sacrifice. We're not quite sure what the actual translation is. And how difficult this was going to be. What a difficult journey. The last journey from their home at Ramah up to Shiloh to give this child away. In life, I suppose, the biggest sacrifice as a mother as they grow, their children grow, is to take their hand off them and let them find their way. That can be a real difficult problem. We always used to talk about it as cutting the apron strings. But I know that for many women it is a difficult problem. But you know, I want to encourage you this morning with Hannah. She was handing her child over. She didn't know. I mean, we look at this and we see it in retrospective. We see that everything turns out well. But when Hannah handed it over to the Lord, it was just a total act of faith. She didn't know what would happen to Samuel. She knew the state Israel was in. She knew that people like Eli and Phineas, who were Eli's, uh, Hophni and Phineas, who were Eli's sons, were pretty corrupt guys, as we'll find out later. She knew that things were not well, 
and yet she was still prepared to allow that boy, that three-year-old boy, to be put into that environment, not really knowing what was going to happen, but trusting God that at the end of the day it would be done his way. So verse 25, when the bull had been sacrificed, they brought the boy to Eli and she said to him, Pardon me, Lord, as surely as I live, I am the woman who stood beside you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child and the Lord granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him to the Lord for his whole life he will be given over to the Lord and he worshipped the Lord there. The bull being sacrificed, a sacrificial bull was normally given over for a whole family or for at least one adult. It was a recognition <clears throat> to me that in some measure Samuel was treated as an adult. That although he probably hadn't sinned all that much as a child and yet that sin gene from Adam had pervaded him as well as it has pervaded all of us. And the sacrifice has to be made for that. And of course, the sacrifice for us was Jesus Christ on the cross at Calvary. The whole context of this means that she says she wanted to lend it to the Lord. The Lord had lent her the child. And in some measure, that's the way we should look at it. God gives his children as a loan. He wants them back eventually. And he will take them back eventually. Either through his coming at the rapture or he'll take them through death. Hopefully, we are gone by that time. That's why I always feel that, you know, I'm always blessed when people want to dedicate their children to the Lord in this fellowship. We don't baptize them, we don't do anything fancy, we just lift them up before the Lord and offer them to the Lord and say, Lord, this is the gift you've given us, we hand it back to you, for you to do as you see fit, Lord, and guide us in the way we should go. So that, you know, it's always a blessing when we, when we offer up a child and dedication here in the fellowship. And that's why we do it. It's a recognition that all children are a gift from God and that we should give them back to God. So in chapter 1 we see the prayer of a desperately discouraged woman and now in chapter 2 we'll see the praise of a joyful woman. Joyful in the sense that she knows absolutely that she's in the perfect will of God. There's no doubt, no dubiety, no wondering is this really the right thing to do? She offered the son to God if God would give him. God gave him and now she has offered him back. And she's quite happy that she stands in the perfect will of God. Even although her heart must have been breaking as she handed the child over. At the start of chapter 2 we've got this prayer here. Hannah's prayer it's called. <clears throat> and it's a very interesting prayer. It's a prayer which seems to tie up with the prayer of the Virgin Mary in Luke chapter 1. Mary was a teenager, probably 15, 16, maybe even less, who probably, because she was a, a woman at that point in time, even in the Jewish society, she probably couldn't read or write. As probably Hannah couldn't either. There was very few of the women. You know, I always say this, that it's, it's Christ that has set women free. It's Christ that has brought that equality and that oneness that, that women need to have. She couldn't read or write, but she was obviously going to the synagogue on a regular basis. She was obviously a fairly godly woman that God would pick her to be the mother of the Messiah. So when she went to the, to the synagogue, she would hear the word. And what does the Bible say? Hearing comes 
No, believing comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And I'm quite sure she would have heard this prayer of Hannah's many times and, and related to it, not as a, as a young mother, but maybe she thought, I want a hope. I hope when my children come I can be like Hannah. I hope when my children come I can be rejoicing in the Lord, even if God asks me to do something fairly radical with my children. Little did she know that it was going to be more than fairly radical, that this young woman, Mary, would be asked to tell people that she got pregnant with a ghost. I mean, what a start to a story. I mean, how do you start that? The Holy Spirit shall come upon you. Um, So what happened, Mary? A ghost came and made me pregnant. And... It's unbelievable, isn't it? I mean, it is. But it's only the Spirit of the Lord that can activate that within us. And I think at the end of the day, that's... She was familiar with Hannah's prayer. <clears throat> and when she, the time came for Mary to be called on to be the mother of the Messiah. Do you know the times when you read a scripture many times and it means nothing? And then suddenly you read that scripture and it comes bouncing off the page at you. And it just seems to surround you. Well, I believe that that may be what had happened to Mary when she, when she read Hannah's prayer, when Gabriel had told her that she would be the, the mother of the Messiah, that this whole thing of Hannah's prayer just bounded out of her mind, that she'd heard in the past and thought, glory to God, my soul magnifieth the Lord, just the same as Hannah would do here. How many times does this happen to us? I mean, many times I'm sure you've read scripture and it's meant nothing. And then suddenly it becomes a living word activated by the Holy Spirit. So this prayer that we're going to read here in a minute, it has a heavenly accent, but there's a sort of earthly or earthly accent to it. And there's quite a few of none too subtle references to our adversary Penina as she rejoices in the Lord. She's just straightforward with her prayer. She praises God and she asks God to defeat her enemies and to bring down the arrogance of her enemies. You know, in prayer sometimes I feel in myself, sometimes I get a bit posh and flowery with the words, but prayer shouldn't be that. You just need to be real with the Lord. It's not a case of knowing the right words to say. God knows what you're going to ask before you ask Him. That's the crazy thing. And yet he still wants you to ask. Don't talk to God in any other way than you would talk to each other. Miss out the swear words, of course. But God wants honest prayer. If you're struggling, tell him you're struggling. If you're having a difficulty with your faith, then tell him. I'm sure Elkanah and Hannah must have cried out to him, Lord, where are you? We've cried for this baby. We've we've, we've wept over it. We've been on our knees. We've offered sacrifices. We've just put everything, we've fasted, we've prayed. What's happening, God? And then suddenly, God moves. And it happens. And Samuel's there. And here they are. And I'm sure Elkanah and Hannah must have been saying to each other, what just happened? Suddenly, the whole purpose of our life has changed. So in response to God, in response to Eli's dedication to this young boy, Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord, and the Lord my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. We find her here rejoicing. She's not rejoicing in her circumstances, but she's rejoicing in the Lord, because she knows that the Lord is in her circumstances, 
And that in some measure the Lord is responsible for her circumstances. So she can rejoice in the Lord because she knows that she stands in the centre of God's will at this point in time. How often we find ourselves in frustrating situations like this where all we've got is prayer. But I want to tell you that if all you've got is prayer, all you need is prayer. If you needed anything else, God would have given you it. All you need is prayer. We're in a situation where we've got people around us who are sick and people around us who are emotionally disturbed and there's nothing we can do about it. There's nothing in this human frame of ours that's capable of doing anything about it. But we can pray. My soul magnifies the Lord. My horn is lifted high. When that, that refers to the strength of something. It's taken from the sort of idea of a bull with big horns and the strength that's behind it. And the Lord, and the Lord, my horn is lifted high. In some of the translations, it says there, "My mouth is enlarged." In my translation, it says, "My mouth boasts over my enemies." <clears throat> and in some measure, that's. Hannah, she's gone for my heart rejoices in the Lord and all the rest of it, and my mouth boasts over my enemies. My mouth is enlarged. In other words, it's, it's Penina, the one who had all these babies, who had tortured and tormented her all the days of her life so far because she couldn't give birth to children. Suddenly, Penina is silent. Because although Penina may have a number of children, she's not sure whether any of them are really set apart to the Lord. Where Hannah can say, you see Samuel, he's worth more than all your children. I have a child set apart by God and a child given by God. And in verse 2 she says, there is no one holy like the Lord, there is no one beside you, there is no rock like our God. Always think that those three lines there would make a wonderful song just to sing them and repeat them. There is no one holy like our Lord, there is no one beside you. There is no one like there's no rock like our God. And that in some measure <clears throat> we're back to the heavenly language. There's there is no one like our God. There is no thing in all creation that is like our God. We have been made in God's image. We are the pinnacle of God's creation. We are the people of whom God said, Let us make them in our own image and here we are and yet although we're made in God's image the irony is that we're the most destructive force in the universe you can talk about all your planets colliding and all the rest of it but mankind are the most destructive element in the universe that's why we need the saviour that's why we need to be changed do not Keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance at verse 3. For the Lord is a God who knows and by him our deeds are weighed. Again she's talking in some measure about Penina. Who was a proud speaker whose mouth spoke arrogance. The Lord God knows and by him deeds are weighed. The bows of the warriors are broken. But those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who were full. Those who were for hire themselves out for food but those who were hungry are hungry no more she who was barren has borne seven children but she who has had many sons pines away or wastes away 
So we see from this prayer that Hannah is just repeating what she's heard in the synagogue. This is her prayer. This is her rejoicing before the Lord. That, you know, the strength of the warrior is nothing against God. That those who put themselves out for hire, for food, the hungry are hungry no more. She who was barren has seven children, but she who has many sons pines away. She speaks there about having seven children, speaking about herself. She who was barren has seven children. And it's prophetic in the sense that she has one child in Samuel, and we'll find out later in this chapter that she has another five, two daughters and three sons, which makes six. So who was the seventh? Maybe the link with Luke chapter 1 that she's looking forward, she's prophesying that out of her line would come the Messiah, that seventh son. And that that seventh son, you know, there are no uncles and aunts and nephews and nieces in the kingdom of God. We're all God's sons. We have all got to come our own way. We're all unique in the way that God has made us in but we've all got to come through the cross of Jesus Christ. So the link there is prophetic in the sense that Hannah is saying, yes, I have six sons physically, but a seventh will be mine somewhere down the line. The Lord brings death and brings alive. He brings down to the grave, verse 6, and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and he lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and has them inherit a throne of honour. So Hannah has given us this idea that God is sovereign over all things. There's nothing new in that idea. He brings one ministry to an end and he starts another. And you know, in this situation we find ourselves in even today, there's always an opportunity to exalt ourselves. There's always an opportunity to put ourselves in a higher position than we really should be. But beware, those who are exalted will be put down and those who are humbled will be raised up. Do you remember the story of the wedding guests in Luke 14 when the guy came into the wedding and he thought, well, I'm quite, a, I'm quite well off here, you know. I'll sit at the top of the table. And up he went and sat at the top of the table. But when the bridegroom came in and the bridegroom's father came in, he said to him, excuse me, there's no enough room. You'll need to go and sit down at the bottom end. And he was embarrassed by it. And yet... Unfortunately, we see so much of it in the church today that men are exalting themselves in the place of God. I find it quite difficult. This is only a personal opinion. Maybe you have a different opinion. But when people start to call themselves the reverend and the right reverend and the very reverend and the very reverend doctor, I have great difficulty with that. Because if that's no self-exaltation, I don't know what is. The Lord lifts up and the Lord puts down. And blessed be the name of the Lord. And he says there at verse 8, the back end of verse 8, For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. On them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful servants, but the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. Again, the same old teaching for the Old Testament. There's a place for the righteous and a place for the unrighteous. The Jews might not have had it correct at this point in time, that the way that you should be saved but they had the idea that there was a place that the righteous would go, those who knew God, and a place for the wicked to go, those who knew not God. We talk here about the foundations of the earth, and 
You know, I'm always fascinated by the scripture in Job 26, when it says, when Job says, you have, you have hung the world, the sphere of the world, on nothing. I mean, how did Job know that all these years ago, that the sphere of the world was hung on nothing? And at the time of Job, Job was probably the oldest book in the Bible. At the time of Job, there were people running around. The, the Indians thought that the, that the world was flat and that it was held up with four big elephants. And the Greeks thought that the world was flat and it was held up with Atlas holding on his shoulder. Although it shows you being circular, it was actually they believed it was flat. And here, Hannah is repeating what's in Job that the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. On them he has set the world. He has hung the world in nothing. The sphere of the world. We just hang there. I mean, th- there's a force at work. We just hang there. 93 million miles from the sun. 1,000 miles an hour rotating around that way and probably about 10,000 miles an hour going right around the sun. I mean, it's unbelievable. And yet God has set it up. The foundations of the world are his. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken and the Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Israel has no king at this point in time. Samuel would be the last judge who would make the bridge between the judges and the kingship in Israel. Israel has no king. But when you read that last bit, he will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Anointed is the English word. Jesus, a Christ is the Greek word. Messiah is the Hebrew word for anointed. So she again, she's, she's foreshadowing the coming of the Christ. All those years ago, 1100 years before he actually appeared, Hannah knew that he was going to come. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, but the boy ministered before the Lord under Eli the priest. Elkanah went home with Hannah, but no Samuel. And so we'll leave the story at this point in time and we'll get a little bit of interruption here because what we're going to see now is a, a, an example of the wickedness of the current system in Israel. Excuse me, against what would happen when Samuel was raised up to be the high priest in Israel. Eli's sons, at verse 12, were scoundrels. They had no regard for the Lord. Now it was the practice of the priests that whenever any of the people offered a sacrifice, the priest's servants would come with a three-pronged fork in his hand while the meat was being boiled and would plunge the fork into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. Whatever the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. We find in Moses' law in Exodus 29 and Leviticus chapter 7 that the priests, when anyone brought a sacrifice, the priests were entitled to a bit of the breast and a bit of the shoulder. That was there. That was to be their peace. The sacrifice was divided three ways. The, the, the beast was obviously slaughtered and then the fat was taken off it and the fat was offered to the Lord. That was supposedly the best bit of the and they burned the fat before they did anything else. And then after they had burned the fat, the priest or the priests would take their bit, which was a bit of the shoulder and a bit of the breast of the beast, and that would be their portion. And then the rest would be given back to the person who offered it. 
And that would be theirs for a family feast, as we saw with Hannah Elkanah handing out the, the portions to each other. But that was not what the priests were actually doing. That whenever any of the people offered a sacrifice, not the priests themselves would come, but the servants of the priest, with this great three-pronged fork, almost like the trident thing. And uh, they would plunge it into a pan that was boiling with meat, and they would take out a piece. Now, if it was the if it was a huge piece, they would just take it. It was not according to the law of God. They were being greedy and presumptuous before the Lord. Whatever the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. But we find that it's these servants of the priests. You know, don't you find it in everyday life? And we see it all the time in, in politics. And Thankfully, hopefully, not too much in the church. But when somebody wants their dirty work done, they've always got somebody else to do it for them. They don't want to do it themselves. They don't want to get accused of this or that. Oh, he did it. He didn't have any authorization from me. And the lies just pour forth. So these servants turn up and they demand that they are allowed to plunge the fork into the, into the pot. But it gets worse. This is how they treated all the Israelites who came to Shiloh. But even before the fat was burned, in other words, the offering was made to God, the priest's servants would come and say to the person who was sacrificing, give the priest some meat to roast. He won't accept boiled meat from you, only raw. Now there's probably two reasons behind this. One was probably roast meat was better, nicer to eat. The other was, of course, that there was a market in the meat. <clears throat> the any of the meat that was left over after the sacrifices could be sold in the market around Shiloh. And it, there was a lot of thought goes into this that the priests were actually making money off it. They were taking the best cuts of the meat off the sacrifice and selling them raw in the market and making money. And thus, you know, making a mockery of the sacrifice the people were making. The sacrifice should first have been to God. Then, as I say, the priests would have their peace and then the offerer would get the rest back. If the person said to him, let the fat be burned first and then take whatever they want, the servant would answer, no, hand it over now. If you don't, I'll take it by force. I don't know about you, but when I'm eating a steak, I like a wee bit of marbling and a wee bit of fat there, you know, don't I don't want all the fat cut off it. And that's exactly what these guys were saying. Before you even make an offering to the Lord, I want my cut. And I suppose we could say that in some of the places today, that money seems to be the driving force in many of the ministries today, that before the Lord gets any of it, there are men around who want their cut. They're threatening people here with violence. If you don't do it, I'll take it by force. I'll come against you with a sword. Now in those days, it would be not unusual for everybody to carry a sword. It was quite difficult travelling conditions and the state that Israel was in, you could be ambushed with Philistines or Amorites or Ammonites at any point in time. So the caravans as they travelled would probably be quite well armed. So there was a threat of violence even in the house of the Lord here. We probably don't see that today in the church. But what I do see is what we used to call shepherding where people couldn't do anything without asking the leadership first. I remember a friend of mine who got himself out of the shepherding idea. But he said, you know, he says, when I look back, it was terrible. He says, I was getting phone calls at one in the morning that somebody's washing machine had broken down. What kind of washing machine should I buy? 
You know, it, it got as bad as that. That it was a total reliance, and that. I mean, we think that's lunacy, but that's what was happening, and it's still happening today. That people are under a total control of, I suppose, what we could call priests. It's not my job to live your life for you. It's my job to pray for you. I see things and I hear things. And I might not like it. But I have to take it in prayer. That is my weapon. That is my weapon against the wells of the devil. For you know, when I look at people's lives and I look at my own life and I see the, the flaws and the problems, our battle's not against flesh and blood. It's against the the devil, it's against the powers and the principalities those evil beings in the heavenlies so the sin of the young men at verse 17 <clears throat> was very great in the Lord's sight for they were treating the Lord's offerings with contempt Excuse me. but Samuel was ministering before the Lord a boy wearing a linen ephod each year his mother made him a little robe and took it to him when she went up with her husband to offer the annual sacrifice. I often wonder if this is a bit of the books that Samuel wrote, because only him and his mother would really know what happened there. You know, you can just imagine this wee guy, three-year-old, getting a linen ephod made for him every year, something a wee bit bigger. You know, and I wonder if his mother took them home every year and kind of put them in a glass case and said that was when he was three and that was when he was four. You know, it's a, there's a there's a real touching heart-touching experience here that although Hannah had given this little boy up to the Lord, she had never stopped loving him. In fact, probably her love had grown greater through it. So she took up this ephod. Now, the ephod was the the breast piece of the the high priest. It was all, well, the priests and the high priest. It was like a poncho that went over your head and tied at the sides. And it had on it the sort of twelve stones that represented the 12 tribes of Israel and I'll leave that for your homework to, dis- to figure out what the stones are and what they mean and uh, it had a little pocket where they kept the urim and the tumim which was a, literally a black and white ball and that was the way they consulted the Lord they prayed about it and then they put their hand in and they pulled one out if it was a good answer it was white and if it was a bad answer it was black and hence that's where the masons took their idea of blackballing people that you know but each year, here was little Samuel. <clears throat> and every time Hannah and Elkanah come up, and Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife, saying, <clears throat> May the Lord give you children by this woman to take the place of the one she prayed for and gave to the Lord. Then they would go home. And the Lord was gracious to Hannah, and she gave birth to three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. Now, the whole idea of that is that Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord because Hophni and Phineas who should have succeeded their father, Eli, as the high priest, were unfit. They certainly weren't walking in the presence of the Lord. But Samuel was being raised up to be the next high priest. And I'm sure, you know, when you look at it, we see it, in, in, as I say, in hindsight, and we think, how did he figure all that out? But Elkanah and Hannah were just delighted that their boy was there, and that they could see him any time they wanted. And here they are. A contrast here between Samuel and Eli's sons. At verse 22, Eli was very old and heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel and how they slept with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of the meeting. So he said to them, why do you do such things? 
I hear from all the people about these wicked deeds of yours. No, my sons, the report I hear spreading among the Lord's people is not good. If one person sins against another, God may mediate for the offender. But if anyone sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? His sins, however, did not listen to their father's rebuke, for it was the Lord's will to put them to death. That's pretty scary. But here we have, not only were they, they, were they greed, greedy and cheating, these guys, Hophni and Finnish, but they were, they were forcing the women who served at the temple of the Lord into sexual sin. And probably they were paying for it. These people, they were turning women into prostitutes because women, at the end of the day, had no real rights in the society at that point in time and were coerced into doing things that they maybe didn't want to do. But you know, the whole context here is um, that we've got a situation where we've got two guys who are supposed to inherit the priesthood, Hophnius and Phineas, and they're so far from the Lord, and yet they think that they're doing all right. They're greedy, they're taking meat, they're selling it for profit, they're having sexual relations with the women who come to the temple. I suppose we could put it down as the, the sort of modern day pastor's sexual revelation that many, not many hopefully, but quite a number of pastors have been caught in a situation and leaders have been caught in a situation where they've ended up in extramarital affairs and it's been the end of their ministry. And they thought they could get away with it. They thought, you know, Aye, God sees, but God will forgive me. Yes, he will. But there's a price to pay for your sin. You have to suffer the consequences of it. Thankfully, we don't have to suffer all the consequences of it. Because Eli says here, if you sin against one another, God may mediate for you. But if anyone sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? But we know who will intercede for us. Christ Jesus, the one and only. Thank God for Jesus, the anointed one. And it says here at the end of this chapter that and the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favour with the Lord and with the people. That just reminds me of the same scripture that talks about Jesus in the New Testament, that the young boy grew up before the Lord and in the, in the sight of the people and he grew strong and he grew in favour. And so we're past the stage now where we know the whole script as far as the, the scene has been set that Eli is an old man and dying. Hophni and Phineas are corrupt young priests. Samuel is going to be the priest that God will raise up. And in these next few chapters we'll see as Samuel comes to the place where God calls him. God calls him physically to come and serve him. An audible voice in the night. So as we finish with this today Help us to remember that the sacrifices that we make to God are have to be sacrifices to, of the heart. It can't be just a, an offhand thing to say, well, Lord, if you'll do this, I'll do that. It's not a bargaining tool. Our prayers should be of, of a stature that not only are they involved in this church or our fellowship locally, but they're far more global than we could ever imagine. Who knows? Who knows what effect you guys are having on the people in India or anywhere that any of us have visited who knows the effect that you people are having on the people that you're supporting in India and Pakistan and 
Mine and my and these places. Just be given a few pounds every week. But it's a sacrifice. It should be a sacrifice. It can't just be, oh, well, here's a couple of bob, and then get yourself a cup of tea. It should be prayerfully given to people. And the sacrifice that other people make should be honoured. There's no point in saying to people, well, he only put two pounds in the offering, I put in twenty. You only put in twenty because God gave you twenty. The other person only put in two because they only had two. And it may have been all they had. So honour each other's sacrifice before the Lord. It may not be the way that you would do it, but it may be the way that God wants to do it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for your